we talk about this idea of the New Testament use of the Old Testament, it's, it's what it is. The scripture does this. So it, it's, a, it's a tremendous thing. On the other hand, it presents a challenge to us. Uh, but because when you look at the Old Testament reference, or the New Testament references to Old Testament quotations, you'll, you'll sometimes be puzzled as to what you see exactly. And uh, you'll look at things and you'll say, hey, this doesn't exactly say it the way the Old Testament did, for example. For example, look at Hebrews chapter, so I'll look at Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, I tell you what, uh, turn to Hebrews 10 and also have, uh, turn to uh, Psalm chapter 40. Psalm 40. So where are we? We're in Hebrews chapter 10, and we are in Psalm 40. Now, we're going to be looking at different passages, so just get ready for that in this particular subject that we're in. Um, all right, Psalm chapter 40, verse 6. Or is everybody with me? Psalm 40, verse 6 and 7. Here is uh, David writing this psalm, and he says here, uh, in Psalm chapter 40, verses 6 and 7. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, your laws within my heart. Look at Psalm, or rather Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 7. The writer of Hebrews quotes this. Therefore, when he refers to this, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, a body you have prepared for me, and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come, and the scroll of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. Anybody notice any differences in those two quotations? What does it say in Psalm? Okay, my ears you have opened, Psalm, in the, uh, Hebrews, a body you have prepared for me. That's just one of the differences. All right, we, we, you encounter this situation in the New Testament at different times. You, when, you, when you're reading through, you see a New Testament quotation or citation or a reference to an Old Testament passage, verse, and it may, you may see some differences, and you may, say, you may not see any differences. You may see, in some cases, differences, and you may say, what, what is going on here anyway? What, what is this? I don't understand this. And so it leads us to several questions. By the way, the material I'm using today came straight out of Roy Zuck's book on biblical, whatever it's called, interpretation. As I, as I say, I always refer to the author of a book, not the title. Um, so he gets credit for all this. Um, normally, I'll mix it up and I'll look at different books, but right now we're starting, we're introducing this matter. He had a lot of good things to say, and I thought it was good. So basically, I just want to introduce this today. Uh, but here's some questions that Zuck asked that I've asked myself that many have asked, not only Roy Zuck, others uh, have asked of the same, of the same, in this particular subject, New Testament use of the Old Testament. It's a huge subject, by the way. Um, number one, how does this relate to the doctrine of verbal inspiration and biblical inerrancy? This idea of how the New Testament uses the Old Testament. If there's differences between the Old Testament quotation and the New Testament Quotation, can we still hold the inerrancy of the Bible? Is that up for debate? These are just questions to think through right now. Um, what about this? Were the New Testament writers interpreting the Old Testament uh, from, a, from a different standard? 
than, the, uh, than, uh, is, than we would use. Uh, uh, does that give us liberty to do the same? In other words, were the New Testament writers using historical grammatical method of interpretation to interpret the Old Testament or something else? Uh, were the New Testament writers bringing out meanings in the Old Testament passage not understood by the Old Testament writers? The Old Testament writers were saying something, but they didn't understand what they were saying exactly. So the New Testament writers, are they reinterpreting what was said? How much of, did the Old Testament writers intend for us to know? How much did they know themselves? These are kind of the kind of questions you think of. Did they know all the meanings brought out later in the New Testament? Or here's the, the, the question that's often asked in this subject. Did they write more than they know? Did they write more than they know uh, that they are actually understood? Did God have in mind more than the human authors of the Old Testament were aware of? Is that the case? If so, can a, verse, a passage have more than one meaning? That's another big question that comes up in this subject. Can you have more than one meaning in a, in a given passage? Does the New Testament meaning ever conflict with the meaning of the passage in the Old Testament? What about that? How can controls be placed on our understanding of those meanings so that we are not abandoning principles of normal interpretation? Um, here's another one that's at, that comes up in this subject. Uh, to what extent did the New Testament, if at all, did the New Testament writers give a fuller sense to some Old Testament passages? What is referred to as census plenty or fuller sense or more than one sense, more than one meaning? We'll talk about that later. Uh, this is not an easy subject we're dealing with right here. I hesitated to even, I, in fact, I wasn't even going to bother with it at all. Because in some senses, I feel like a, uh, a person who can't swim diving into the deep end of a pool without any raft or anything, just kind of flailing around. I feel like that on the one hand. On the other hand, I'm beginning more and more not to feel that way because I know there's a purpose for what's, what's said in the Scripture. There's a reason why it's said the way it's said. Um, and uh, I, I don't think we should just throw up our hands and say, well, we can't even figure this out at all. I, don't, I think it's the totally wrong approach. Somebody said, uh, Stephen, I read it the other day, as a matter of fact, somewhere, and Stephen quoted it for me today. I said, hey, I just read that. Some, somebody, I can't think of his name, said that the New Testament writers used a perverse method of interpretation. Well, that's from a guy who doesn't understand that God's word is God's word, number one, and he has a reason for what he says. Always have to keep that in your mind. Why, some people aren't able to think past, they, their, their, their view of the scripture is like this. They can't think past this. They can't think outside. Look, God's outside the box, okay? That doesn't mean he's, that the method of interpretation is anything. It just means that there's reasons for what he says. What does 2 Timothy 2.15 say? Remember I have that memorized? The King James study to show yourself approved. Modern translations do your best uh, to show yourself approved unto God, Right? A workman that does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, correctly handling the word of truth. So we are, our business is to study the scriptures and, and interpret them correctly. There's, there, is a, there is a way to do that. The scriptures are correct, number one. Now, just because some scholar says that somebody used a perverse method of interpretation doesn't mean, I don't hold, I don't give that scholar the time of day, Okay. He means no, that guy means nothing to me. I don't care what he knows. I don't care where he went to school. I don't care how many degrees he has. In my opinion, he's an unbeliever. I have no time for, for that at all. Well, okay. Would you say that someone who says that verse, sir, you don't really need to study the scriptures. The Holy Spirit will tell you everything you need to know. 
Well, he'll tell you everything you know as you study the scriptures. Because the Holy Spirit and scriptures are always together. Holy Spirit inspired the scriptures, right? And gives you enlightenment on the scriptures. And, you know, what, what we're doing here in the next two weeks or three weeks, whatever, and this subject, this is a huge subject. We're not, is, is, this is a very, understand what we're doing here. This is a very basic overview of the subject. Very, very basic. And I thought about not doing it, and then I thought, no, you know what? You guys are going to come across this the rest of your lives, this subject. So why not go over this, and let's, let's, I think we can learn something even by accident as we delve into this subject, you know, even if it's not a perfectly presented subject. And your questions are not all going to be answered by me on this subject, trust me. Uh, because it's a, a subject uh, that is deep. We're not going to interpret every single passage in the New Testament regarding the Old Testament. We don't have time for that, nor would I. I'd have to study every single passage and be a brilliant beyond scholar to know all the answers right now, anyway. However, and I'll, I'll tell you this too, you're going to spend the rest of your life studying this subject. Because... You'll spend the rest of your life studying the New Testament and what it says about the Old Testament. It says many things. And you're going to ask the questions again and again, what does this mean? So this is a lifetime subject uh, uh, study. That's just how it is. But I think we can learn some things as we look at at least do an overview here about this subject that are going to be helpful. Um, so let's look into this subject. The first thing I have in your notes is this. Like I said, this is Zuck's material. I'm going to give him credit. Um, the extent of New Testament quotations from the Old Testament. How, what's the extent of it? How, how many quotations are there? And what about the allusions in the New Testament to the Old Testament? Sometimes an allusion is just a passing reference, like a brief comment, maybe a word or two or a phrase. And it'll, and it'll say, it'll just throw out there some phrase in the, in the Old Testament. I mean, in the New Testament, it'll throw a phrase that came from the Old Testament somewhere. Because the guy's familiar with the Old Testament, the writer, and he knows it, and he just throws it out there. Uh, what can I liken this to? It's like if you, uh, uh, you know, if you, uh, if Tim's an engineer, an engineer in his world that he lives in, there's a certain language they use, as all, as all people and companies have their own language they use. And Tim could draw from his experience and say, yeah, he'd pull out something from the, from the past and his studies of engineering and what he does in his job, pull out a phrase from something. He knows what he's talking about. I don't necessarily understand what he's saying. But he, he, if he explains it to me, maybe I can. And so there's all these allusions, passing comments in the New Testament that refer to something in the Old Testament. It's all over the place. Okay, now, as far as quotations, actual quotations, how many are there in the New Testament? By the way, you guys looking at my, uh, uh, have you seen the, what, the, what the study Bible said? Did everybody get that to see some, that I passed around? Brad, I think, was not in the room at the time, so he may want to see it, you guys. But, um, well, I, on the back of the SEA study Bible, Brad, if you have one, there's a list of quotations from the New Testament regarding the Old, and it's probably not exhaustive, but it's quite a bit, and you'll see it's interesting when you see it all in one shot. I couldn't tell you what page it's on. If it's, you guys lost a page, it's probably history. No one will ever find it again in the man, in history of mankind. Um, it's in the front in the introduction, but <laughs> it's 2,600-something, 2,500-something, 2,700-something. I don't know what page it's on. A lot of pages in the ESV study Bible. <laughs> All right, so quotations. There's an average of between, this is the average, 250 to 300 quotations in the New Testament of the Old Testament. That's what many scholars conclude. You say, why not an exact number? Well, not that simple. Sometimes quotations are strung together at one shot with other Old Testament quotes. You may have one followed by another followed by another, 
And so the guys classifying them would say, well, was this one quotation or is it several or what is it? So there's different counts. There may also be a summary of an Old Testament. Here's something else you've got to understand. A summary of an Old Testament passage <coughs> in the New Testament. It's just summarizing a passage. That's all it's doing. <coughs> is that a quote? <coughs> is that to be considered a quote? Just a reference to a, a summary. A guy named Roger Nicole, a good scholar, he put together a list, uh, one of the more standard lists, of quotes. He came up with 295 separate quotes. I think I have that in your notes. Um, and so somewhere near 300, it's probably, he's probably more accurate than most, somewhere near 300 quotes in the Old Testament, uh, in the New Testament of the Old Testament. Of that number, he says 224 are, are direct citations. And it's introduced by a, a, uh, it's introduced by a uh, formal statement like, as it is written. You've seen that many times in your Bibles, right? As it is written, boom, quotes the Old Testament directly. That's just, here it is. I mean, it's a blatant quote. It says, here it is. This is what it says. Several other quotes, uh, well, sometimes in a quote, it'll, it'll say, and, the word and, to, to introduce a second quotation from the Old Testament somewhere else in the Bible. It may be a different passage altogether. For example, let's, let's, all, let's look at Hebrews chapter 1. So you can see this clearly. Hebrews 1 is a great example of this. Um, there's others, many others. You talk about quotations strung together, one after the other. Hebrews 1, the author of Hebrews, of course, which we all know is Paul. Actually, there's, there's good reason to think it might be Paul. I know everybody puts that down, but that's a debate as to who it is, Luke or Barnabas or whoever. Anyway, Hebrews one is quoting a lot of Old Testament references. Look at verse 5. To which of the angels did he ever say, quotation, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Where's that from? From Psalm 2, verse 7. Okay. Then he goes to verse 6. And again, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. Is that Psalm 2, 8? No, that's right. It's 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Davidic covenant he quotes from. Then he goes to verse 8, I'm sorry, verse, uh, verse 7, of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds as ministers of flame of fire. That's Psalm 104, verse 4. This guy's just ripping off the quotes all over the place from the Old Testament. Verse 8, of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Uh, that's Psalm 45, verse 6. Verse 9, you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your, your fellows or your companions. Psalm 45, verse 7. That's on the heels of 45, 6. Verse 10, and, still going, you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. That's Psalm 102. He leaves Psalm 45 and quotes from Psalm 102, verse 25. Verse 11, they will perish. <coughs> you remain. They all will become old like a garment. Like a mantle, you will roll them up. Psalm 122, 26, still in Psalm 102. Uh, same thing in verse 12, Psalm 102. Verse 13. To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make, an in, uh, until I make a, your enemies a footstool for your feet? That's Psalm 110. And so you see he's stringing together quote after quote after quote <coughs> from the Old Testament to prove his point. Um, in this passage. Um, now, in 19, as Roger Nicole goes on to say, in 19 passages that are quoted in the New Testament of the Old, 
The writers give a paraphrase, it's very important, a paraphrase or a summary of the Old Testament passage rather than a direct quotation. Not always a direct quotation given in the New Testament. So sometimes you see a difference. He's not quoting directly, he's paraphrasing sometimes. Psalm 104, because that's all he needs to do. In 45 quotations, the length or the specific nature of the quotation is given without being introduced. In other words, it doesn't say as it is written, it just throws out the quote from the Old Testament. Okay? Does everybody understand this so far, what I'm saying? Okay. So, Nicole tells us that of the 295 quotations in the New Testament of the Old, that is contained in 352 New Testament verses. Another guy says that 23 of the 27 New Testament books cite the Old Testament. You can see that in the back of my ESV study Bible. I think you can see that many uh, books, almost all the books, many books are quoted uh, in the Old Testament. The books with the highest concentrations of Old Testament quote, uh, citations are Matthew. Think about Matthew 2. I think four times he refers to, he quotes the Old Testament. Acts quotes the Old Testament all the time. Romans, Paul's always quoting the Old Testament. What, what's a favorite book of Paul's to quote, by the way? He loves to quote different books, but he loves to particularly, I think, to quote Isaiah. It's always uh, Romans 10, I think, and Isaiah says, and he says again, and he says it again in another reference. Okay, Hebrews quotes a lot of Old Testament verses. Um, some verses are quoted several times. Can anybody tell me the verse most frequently quoted in the, Old, in the New Testament of the Old? Number one verse. Psalm 19 is a good guess. There's many times it's quoted. But that's not, that's the silver version. The gold standard is, for the most quotations, is Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It's found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts, Hebrews, and so on. Many times. You can look that up in your, by the way, look at your cross-references in your Bible. You'll see all these things. Uh, and look how it's spread out. Now, the Hebrew Bible is divided into prophets, writings, and, and uh, psalms, or prophets, writings, and uh, Pentateuch, the, the law, prophets, and writings, we could say, okay? The Hebrew Bible is divided that way. Our Bibles is different orders. The same Bibles, just we have a different order than they did. And so, uh, Nicole found out that, uh, of the, that 99, uh, no, 278 verses are quoted from the Pentateuch, 99 from the prophets, 85 from the writings. They're kind of split up all over the Old Testament. And now, we talk about quotations. There are many allusions, many more allusions um, in, the, in the New Testament to the Old Testament, far more numerous. And those are hard to, to under, harder to ascertain because, you know, sometimes it may say a word or two, and, you know, people, it's kind of hard. Is, it really, is, it, is he quoting that little phrase in Deuteronomy or something or not? And so there's an estimate of 442 to 4,105, 4, how many actual illusions there is. So that's, that's you know, uh, one that's more difficult to determine. Um, what do I have to do here? Okay. Remind me to bring home some white paper from the church here today. Please, somebody remind me of that. <laughs> so um, all the New Testament books allude to the Old Testament uh, probably... Uh, and probably all Old Testament books are alluded to in some way or another. Um, now, for example, Romans 5.12, what does it say? Wherefore is sin, one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin? So death passed upon all men, all of sin? That's, that's not a, he's talking about, he's alluding to something. What's he alluding to? 
Is he quoting directly the Old Testament at that point? Yeah, Genesis, right? He's making an allusion to Genesis. Oh, remember Adam? He didn't say it like that, but he talks about Adam in that passage, but there's an allusion. Look at 1 Corinthians 10. Look at all these allusions. 1 Corinthians 10. Just these passing references, or, or, or not just passing, but brief comments about this and that. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10 talks about uh, all our fathers in verse 1 were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Verse 2, all were baptized into Moses. Verse 3, they all ate the same spiritual food. Verse 4, drank the same spiritual drink. Um, look, at, look at verse 7. Don't be idolaters as some of them were. And it actually does quote a verse there. Verse 8, don't act immorally like some of them did. Verse 9, don't try the Lord like some of them did. Verse 10, don't grumble like some of them did. And it says these things all happen as an example to us. Those are all allusions to the wilderness wanderings, right? And all the stuff that took place back there. Um, Somebody determined that, and I, don't, I never, I mean, I don't, I'd have to, you know, take a week to do this, but somebody determined that the book of Revelation actually alludes to the Old Testament about 331 times. Now, you can see that when you read Revelation. If you, one of the things you need to notice about Revelation is the number, is all the references to the Old Testament. All these allusions all over the place, again and again. You have to think through that one. And yet, this guy says there's no direct quotations from the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. No direct citations, just allusions. Um, so allegedly, the people that have done this, this study, I'm not saying allegedly, they've done this study, more than 10% of the New Testament text is made up of citations or direct quotations or allusions to the Old Testament. That's a lot, okay? So when you're reading the Old Testament, what, what, what's a couple of things that tells us, by the way? All these quotations, allusions to the Old Testament, what does that tell us? Does it tell us anything about the two testaments, Old and New Testament? Even though we're under the New Covenant, it doesn't make the Old Testament null and void. It's just as important. Yeah, it's not null and void. I mean, there's things that I, we obviously understand Christ came. We're not offering lambs anymore, you know. But um, things of that nature. But they're related to each other, right? The Testaments are related, hand and glove. And they are so related to each other. Old Testament pointing ahead, New Testament looking backward. They're always, they're always related like that. And why would that be the case? Same God, that same one single author, right? God put it all together, and he means for it to be together. Uh, that's one thing it means. What else does it mean for us? What does it mean when it comes to interpreting the New Testament? For us, who are alleged interpreters of the New Testament. What is it? It's not going to contradict what the Old Testament already said. True. That's one thing. That's a good point. What else? Means we cannot neglect the, New, the Old Testament, doesn't it? The New Testament tells me uh, many things, but it tells me one thing about this subject. I can't neglect the Old Testament because it's, there's too many citations, quotations, allusions. And when I look at it, I think to myself, wait a minute. I have to understand something out of the Old Testament to get this. I can't get it and, and to teach it. How, am I going to how are you going to teach this without understanding something? Old I'm not saying we've got to be Old Testament scholars. We've got to understand something about it, though. Does, the Old Testament verify the New Testament? Does it verify the New Testament? Yeah, because it's quoted so much in the New Testament. Yeah, that's a good point, Dave. Yeah. You usually don't think of it that way. That's true. Yeah, that's right. 
So it's hand and glove. It fulfills that which went before it, the New Testament does, the Old Testament. Um, and it tells us this. It, it shows us that the New Testament writers, listen to this one, all these guys, Wendell, I'm sorry. amazing it really is uh so that's true it shows that divine authority and uh some references like uh in genesis 12 3 and, and abraham all the nations will be blessed it's quoted later on in the old testament and it's quoted in the new testament like galatians it just continues on so this is all organic whole the the bible's unified old testament new testament all unified together it's amazing so what does it tell us about the new testament writers now now this now think of this in light of this i've read I had a class on this subject, and uh, I, I read a bunch of different guys and their different views and opinions on this whole thing. And there's guys from all the way from, uh, I, you know, the, the scriptures of the Word of God, and I believe that it's, it's all unified, to the guy who said the New Testament were perverse in their interpretation of the Old Testament. All is and everything in between. Peter ends, for example, uh, not Paul ends over here at Idlewild, but Peter ends got weird views about. Uh, the Old Testament, New Testament used to the Old. And you got all these guys saying, well, you know, we just can't get this, and they, you know, they twisted the meaning of Scripture, and they reinterpreted it, and all this kind of stuff. That's what these guys are all saying out there, except for the conservatives like a Walter Kaiser, who would, is very conservative, and no, they, they interpreted the Word of God as it should have been. But in light of all that, how did the New Testament writers view the Old Testament? Did they ever show any, dis when they quote the Old Testament and they allude to it, did they ever show any distrust of it? Never. It's always, we know this is the Word of God. We know it. There's no, there's no questioning about it. There's no, there's no uh, distrust of it at all. There's, they're not questioning the truth. They're not uh, repudiating the truth. They're, none of that. They're all just, they have complete, total confidence in the Old Testament as the Word of God. Nothing but that. The New Testament writers do. Listen to this. Fifty-six times the New Testament writers say the Old Testament citations are from God. Again and again and again. Uh, for example, by the way, can you give this to Stane? Did you get a... Okay. Dave, you got one? Yeah. Okay. I mean, do you have yours? Okay. Oh, oh Dave is... What's that? Page two, right? Dude, I'm not sure where we're at here. Oh, page two? I don't, I'm, I'm on my own notes. I got a different set of notes here. Um. I thought Dave was just trying to hide a second copy for himself there or something. Anyway, for example, you take Psalm 95, verses 7 to 11. That's quoted in Hebrews 3.11. And it, sa it starts by saying this. So, as the Holy Spirit says, see how they say it? As the Holy Spirit says, giving the, giving the, the, the quote to the, to, to the Lord, right? Holy Spirit said this. A uh, number of times, uh, statements... Uh, are called scripture in the New Testament writers. New Testament writers will say this is scripture when they talk about the Old Testament. 
Romans 9.17, for example, Paul says this, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, <clears throat> interesting, isn't it? And yet, if you go to Exodus 9.16, where he's quoting, it said the Lord was speaking to Pharaoh. Galatians 3.8, Paul says the Scripture announced the Gospel. And then um, he talks about Genesis, he talks about Abraham. In Genesis 12.3, it says God is speaking there. So, here's the, what do we conclude from this? The New Testament writers believe that when the Scripture spoke, God spoke. Old Testament is sacred to them. They never had any questions about it at all. They weren't like some of these scholars today that question everything and say strange statements that are wrong. You have to understand, by, by the way, a lot of scholars, so-called scholars, are not. some are believing people and they love the Lord and they serve him, like Greg Harris, Master Seminary, Mike's friend, who came over and spoke at our church one time. And there's others who are unbelieving scholars. Are they scholars? Yeah, they know the languages, they know all this ancient history and everything. But they're unbelievers. They have no time for the Word of God as being the Word of God. They're just so they write a book. They put it out and everybody believes what they say. They're coming from a biased point of view. You have to understand that, okay? Um, a lot of times the New Testament writers refer to the Old Testament writers by name. And even refer to the author, uh, the, the divine author. So the New Testament writers believed in dual authorship. There was a human writer inspired by a divine author, God. Here's a few examples. Uh, Matthew 1.22 says this, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. Talking about a prophet wrote. And then Matthew 12.36, David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared. See that? First one was the Lord said through a prophet. You got the divine author, the human author. And in Matthew 12.36, you got David... The human author speaking through what? Through by the Holy Spirit, right? And then you got, uh, for example, Acts 1.16. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David. Old Testament scripture. And David was the author of this particular scripture. Hosea says, as, as uh, Romans 9.25 says, uh, Paul's quoting Hosea, as God says, as he says in Hosea, <clears throat> somebody says, I don't care about Hosea. Well, Paul did. He quoted from it in the New Testament. So all these guys in the New Testament are referred to by name, the Old Testament writers, Moses, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Joel, Hosea, and so on, referred to as the writers of Scripture, and God is referred to. N never do the New Testament writers cast doubt in the Old Testament ever or the way they looked at it. So that's something to the extent of the quotations and allusions uh, of the New Testament to the Old, maybe up to 300 quotations and a lot more allusions, okay? Now, secondly, number two, big number two, ways the quotations are introduced. Is everybody with me on this? The way, different ways the, the quotations are introduced. New Testament writers... Page one. Let me look at this thing. Yeah, page one, that's right. Page one. I've got the reduced copy here. <laughs> page one. I'm a reductionist. Um, I like these words these guys use in the scholarly world. <laughs> uh, redaction, redactionist, and all this stuff. It's, so it's just funny, really, to me. The guys coming up with all these words, most of them are not even believers a lot of times, you know, by the way. Anyway, the ways the quotations are introduced. I'll listen, look at all the examples, uh, and, and I've got the verses uh, here, but you, you go to the New Testament and you see quotations of the Old Testament, and it'll say things like, It is written. You'll come across that in your reading. It is written. And you know, all, all of a sudden, you're going to have an Old Testament quotation coming up, right? 
Usually in our Bibles today, it's got this in bold letters normally, capital letters, which is convenient. Uh, or it might be, Jesus might have said in Mark, for example, is it not written? How about the many times he says, Jesus says, have you not read to the Pharisees? Have you not read this? Have you not read that? Have you not read this over, over and again and again? And he keeps saying that. Hey, did you guys ever read your Bible? Your Old Testament. Or did you understand it properly, as Spurgeon says in his sermon on how to read the Bible? Interesting sermon, by the way. Um, how about this? Haven't you read this scripture? That's another quotation, uh, or way of introducing the, the quotations of the Old Testament. Have you not read in the book of Moses, Jesus said? You have heard that it was said, Matthew 5, which may be actually a reference to uh, what the uh, uh, Jewish people thought, rather than the scripture on that particular reference. Uh, Matthew 2, 5, this is what the prophet has written. Um, here's another one. All this took place to fulfill something in the Old Testament. Another introduction, another introduction, so was fulfilled. And then here's another one, Matthew 27. Then what, what was said by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. So was fulfilled to fulfill what was said. This was to fulfill what was spoken. If the law had not said, another, a quotation to the Old Testament law, it is said, the scripture says, the scripture is said, for Moses said, David himself declared, he says, God, he says, the Holy Spirit says, for this is what the Lord commands. And so you see all these different times in the New Testament, again and again and again, they're quoting the Old Testament, and they're introducing it by saying, it is said, it is written, as it is written, and so on and so forth. And then there are times when Old Testament passages are quoted, but there's no introductory phrase. There's nothing to introduce it that way. It's not, he doesn't say, hey, you remember where it says in the Old Testament, this? It just says it. Look at, look at for example, go to Matthew chapter 9 with me, and just stay at Matthew for a minute. Matthew 9, 13. Um... <clears throat> Jesus is speaking. It's not those who are healthy and need a physician, but those who are sick. Matthew 9, 13. He says, go and learn what this means. And then he says this. I desire compassion, not sacrifices. What's that? What, what is he saying there, Matthew 9, 13? Yeah, he's quoting. Oh, Hosea again? I thought Hosea didn't matter to anybody. Minor prophet, right? Here he quotes Hosea 6.6. He does it again later on, by the way. But there's no introduction there. He doesn't say, hey, remember what it says in Hosea? He just says it. Sometimes they do that. Look at Matthew 18.16. Imagine Jesus reading Hosea. Interesting, huh? Matthew 18.16. Um, verse 15, if your brother sins, go show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more witnesses with you, so that, as it is written, it doesn't say that, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. What's he saying there? What's he quoting there? Yeah, Deuteronomy 19. Mike knows that from memory. Or, could be your cross-references. <laughs> so, uh, there he does it. He quotes without introducing the quote. Look at Matthew 23, 39. <clears throat> Talks about Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one that kills the prophets and stones, stones those who are sent to her. Verse 39, 
For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's Mike's passage, Psalm 118. Right there, see? And which Mike has preached on a few times, by the way. Uh, and, and it's often quoted. Um, and so, quotes that are introduced without a formula, or without, without being introduced formally, just all of a sudden he'll just throw it out there. So when you're reading the New Testament, understand that's part of what's going on here. Boom, he'll throw something out like, wait a minute, what just happened? He just quoted the Old Testament without, you, without telling you he was quoting it. Sometimes several quotations are strung together. We looked at that in Hebrews already. We won't look anymore. Mark 1. Did I, leave you, did I give you guys the references to that? Yeah. Strung together? I tried to give you the technical data on the, on the notes there. Um, some of the, most of the technical data on this stuff. So these are the ways uh, quotations or citations or allusions are introduced or not, inter or not. Some are introduced formally, some informally. All right, let's go to the, th the third point, variations in the wording of the quotations. This is, okay, but there's reasons why the New Testament writers did what they did when they, when they did certain things. Um, when quoting the Old Testament, sometimes the New Testament writers omitted certain words. Well, who said they had, they had to quote the whole thing? Do I, have, do I stand here in judgment and say they have to quote the whole verse? Do you guys sometimes quote part of a verse? Okay, all the time. Josh doesn't do anything but quote part of a verse. Um, sometimes quotations are paraphrased. Just paraphrase. You ever done that? You remember it's like it says in Matthew there, Jesus said, uh, you know, um, it's not those who are, well, what's that? Turn the other cheek? Yeah, right. Um, or something like that. Or, you know, like it says there in Ruth chapter 4, uh, hey, John Doe, that's Net, Net Bible, it's my favorite verse in the Net Bible, John 4.1. Uh, all right, sometimes certain portions of the scripture are omitted on the quotations. Sometimes there's a partial quotation. Sometimes they use a synonym. Is there something that says they can't use a synonym? I, we do it all the time in our, in our writings and stuff. I mean, sometimes this is just how language flows. Sometimes when you're communicating to people, this is how it goes. Sometimes they quote a passage loosely. There's nothing wrong with that. They're just trying to get you in the main idea. There's no law that says the New Testament writers got to quote verbatim from the, New, from the King James Version. There's no law for that happening. He doesn't have to do that. Okay? They may only wish to convey an idea, a main idea in the passage they're looking at. And they'll just throw out something loosely. You remember it says this? Basically it says this. Get it? It's just a paraphrase. There's nothing that says they have to quote verbatim. You know, sometimes in a sermon, I've done this many times, quoted a phrase from the Old Testament. Now, people didn't know what I was doing necessarily. I wasn't taking it out of context. I looked to make sure it was in context, what I was saying. But I'll just quote a phrase. You remember it says over here in uh, Matthew, blah. And I'll throw out the one or two words sometimes. I'm trying to prove a point, which is not taken out of context, I hope, to, to get the point across. But I didn't need to quote the whole passage, or we'd be talking about Balaam's donkey, and I'm talking about something else in the sermon. You know, um, we do that all the time. You know, you have to keep something in mind when the apostles were speaking to their audience in the, in the Book of Acts, or the Old Testament, and the New Testament. Um, sometimes they say things based on their audience, on a communication device they're using. They're speaking, and so they're not going to quote the whole 
Old Testament completely to get their point across. They may just grab something quick and get it across. Maybe they're explaining something. Maybe they're applying something. They're using it in a number of different ways, the way they're, they're quoting a passage or loosely paraphrasing a passage just to get their point across. That happens all the time. You have to understand that. We've got to give these guys room to do that, the same thing we do now anyway. Now, this is the word of God they're, they're dealing with here. It was perfect and holy, New Testament and, and Old Testament. All right, so let's look at this a little bit more. Um, by the way, sometimes, well, I don't know if I'm going to get into this or not today. Um, just so you'll know, in case I don't hit it, and I think I will eventually get to it, definitely. Sometimes, you know, the, the Bible of Jesus' day was not the... Uh, uh, it was not so much the Hebrew as it was the Septuagint, the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament. Because people spoke Greek in general in Jesus' day. And so the apostles and Jesus used the Septuagint for their Bible. They used another translation, in other words. Sometimes it's quoting the Septuagint in the New Testament. Okay, so let's look at this some more. Sometimes the New Testament writers substituted a pronoun for a noun. Uh, do I have that number one? Okay. Um, for example, Matthew <clears throat> quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3. Isaiah 43 says, Make a straight path, make a straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. <clears throat> Matthew, 3, Matthew 3, 3, quoting him, says, Make straight paths for him, substituting him for God. Well, everybody knew what they were talking about. Is that a big deal? I mean, they knew they were talking about God when he said that, you know. So sometimes a quotation is used like that. We do the same thing. I, I might be talking to Shane, and I, I, may, uh, I may tell Mike, yeah, I was talking to uh, Shane the other day, and we talked about this, and then I'll say, and, and he said such and such. Well, do I get to keep saying Shane every time? He knows what I'm talking about. Uh, Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 54, 3, uh, 4.13, by the way, I don't know the answer to all these questions of all the interpretations right now. I don't, I, as I told you earlier, we'd have to all sit here and study this for a long time to figure out every interpretation of the New Testament used to the Old. But I'm just telling you, we have to understand what's going on here in general. Isaiah wrote, all your sons will be taught by the Lord. Isaiah 54, 13. Because I know there's about a million questions in your mind, probably. Um, and Jesus quoted that in John 6, 45. They will all be taught by God. All your sons in Isaiah, they... And John 6. And uh, Zuck says, obviously in his remarks, they suited his purposes better than all your sons when he's speaking to these people. Um, Jeremiah 33, 31, 33, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. Hebrews 10, 16 says, uh, this is the covenant I will make with them. Well, everybody knew he was talking about the house of Israel. He just, he just, he just you know, used that with them to, ex to explain, just to say it a different way. Uh, secondly, nouns are sometimes used in place of pronouns. Uh, if you read the passages on the so-called triumphal entry of Christ in Jerusalem, it talks about the king a lot. This is the king coming in, you know. Okay, <clears throat> Luke 19.38, it says, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That's from Psalm 118.26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Why doesn't it say he again in Hebrews or in, uh, in the Gospels? We're talking about the context of the king in the Gospels. And he just says, this is the king. Oh, by the way, this came from Psalm 118. Okay? Three, a plural noun is sometimes used in place of a singular noun. Um, if you go to Matthew, uh, in Matthew 13, 35, we're not going to turn to all these passages or we'd be here forever trying to do this. 
I'm just trying to give you an overview again. You can think about this. Um, Matthew refers to parables, plural, Matthew 13, 30, 35. But the verse he quoted, Psalm 78, 2, has the singular parable. It's just, it just says parable. <clears throat> However, you go to Psalm 78, it's followed by a parallel thought because Hebrew uses parallelism in its poetry. It says, you know, speaking parable, and then it says dark sayings, plural, right next to, right after parable. So he extends it to plural. So, so he said parables, plural. Uh, I mean, you could use either reference to Psalm 78 and get that anyway. Does that make sense, what I just said? Um, the words his mouth in Psalm 10:7 are changed to the plural form, their mouths. Actually, he says their mouths, but if you look in the NASB, it says whose mouth in Romans 3.14. So I don't see that. It's talking about plural people, but then it gets that verse that says whose mouth. I know that we, uh, you know, the, the, the downside to what we're doing right now is we're not looking at all the verses. But we don't have, uh, if we looked at every single verse, like I said, we'd never get anywhere here. But hope, are you getting the idea of what I'm saying here? Are you have any questions yet so far? You probably have questions I can't answer, right? Again, let me just say, this is a huge subject. You will spend the rest of your life looking into this subject right here. This is maybe, this might be the biggest subject in hermeneutics, period. I, I, I think it is, personally. It plays into prophecy. Plays into prophecy, yeah. Prophecy. <laughs> Right. Sometimes the writers, I wanted you to get the idea, though, that we don't have to put these writers, New Testament writers, in a box and straightjacket them and say, you can't go out of my literary bounds that I've set for you. And that's what these guys are doing, these so-called scholars are doing, I believe. Here's my literary bounds I have set for you. You can't break these bounds. Who says? They can do, it. They, they can do, they can do all this. With, legitimately, they can do it and stay within historical grammatical interpretation. Okay. Right now we're laying a foundation also, uh, so we have much to deal with in the subject. We, we'll go on, but Mike said the LXX, that's the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. If you see LXX, that's all it means. It's the easiest way to say it, which stands for the 70, which they think like 72 guys translated the Greek translation, uh, the Hebrew and the Greek. So, there, so if, you go to, if you have your program like Mike has Logos or a Bible Works, it's going to have uh, Hebrew translation of the Old Testament, Greek translation of the New Testament, Aramaic in certain portions of the Old Testament, and it's going to have uh, Septuagint 
uh, which is the Greek translation of the, of the Hebrew, Old Testament. So it's called LXX, or that's what everybody refers to it as. Okay, sometimes, number four, the, cha the writers change the pronoun for their, to suit their purposes in a given audience or set of circumstances. They're preaching in the New Testament to a, set, set, a certain audience in a certain set of circumstances, and they're using, they're, they're trying to convey that message to people. And when you, when you communicate, you do certain things to communicate without, without denying the scripture at all. Okay? Um, the, Isaiah said the virgin will call his name Emmanuel in Isaiah 7.14. And I don't know why all the reasons either. I couldn't tell you right now. Matthew quotes this. He didn't say that. It says the virgin will call him Emmanuel, Isaiah. In Matthew 1, they will call him Emmanuel. Well, both were true. Uh, both his parents call him Emmanuel and other, everybody else called him, and other people call him that as well. Um, Zechariah 10, 11, Zechariah 12, 10 says, they will look on me, the one they have pierced. And John quotes it. He says, they will look on the one they have pierced. I don't think John's going to say they will look on, I mean, he could say they will look on me, the one they have pierced. But people may have misunderstood what he was saying. You're, you're the one that they pierced? I don't know. He could also quote it directly and people would have understood it. I don't know why he did that. He did it. Moses told the people that God said, I will make them in, in, envious by those who are not a people. Deuteronomy 32. Paul quotes that. Romans 10, 19. I will make you envious instead of I will make them envious. Maybe he's trying to, when, maybe he's trying his, in his communication to say, I'm talking about you guys. You're, you fulfill this passage. You know? I don't know what he did. I'm just saying that there's reasons why these guys did what they did. Well, again, we'd have to study every single passage if you've got time for that. I tell you what, here's your assignment. Study every usage of the New Testament use of the Old and come back next week and give me an answer to every interpretation. That's your assignment. Say, but Mark's giving us too much work to do. <laughs> okay, number five. Uh, occasionally the speaker is identified in the quotation. This is interesting. John the Baptist, is, Isaiah 40, verse 3 says, uh, talks about... Um, um, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, you know. In John 1.23, John says, he's answering a question from religious leaders, and he says, I am the voice of one calling in the desert, in the wilderness. <laughs> okay, he's, he's saying, look, that's, that's me. <laughs> I'm doing that. It says in Isaiah, a voice of one, I'm the voice. Okay? So he needed to alter that quotation a little bit to answer their question. You understand that? See how things are used and, and why they're used? There's, there's reasons why these guys... We, we want to say we can't, uh, we can't get this. There's reasons why these guys said what they said, the way they said it. Number six, sometimes direct, in court, direct discourse is changed to, do, to indirect discourse. Hosea 2.23 again. Well, we're always pointing from Hosea, it seems like. I will say to those who are not my people... I'm, I'm sorry, I'll say to those called not my people, lo... Lo Ami, Lo is no in Hebrew, Ami is people, I is my, you're not, not my people. He says, I'm going to say to them, you are my people. And then in, in Romans 9.25, uh, it says, I will call to my people who are not my people. Well, a little bit different, but it's the same idea. Verse 7, and he, and he may have needed to say it that way because he's directing, he's, he's giving a certain way of saying it to people. So he says that sometimes, you know, it's like, I'll, I'll give you an illustration. Um, in, in the King James, for example, it says in the New Testament, um, it, talks about being it talks about being unhypocritical, I think. A lot of times, 
Modern translations will say, translate the word sincere. The word technically is unhypocritical, but they'll translate it sincere. Okay, we understand it's the same meaning, right? Saying the same thing, just a different, a different word synonym. Seven, other times an indirect discourse is changed to direct discourse. Isaiah 29, 16, he did not make me, it says, is changed to you in Romans 9, 20. Why did you make me like this? You can look that up yourself. But Paul was also presenting an argument in Romans 9 about a certain subject and may needed to present it that way. Um, but still quoting the thought from Isaiah 29. Number eight, the verbal form is sometimes slightly altered. Um, uh, in the Ten Commandments, you know, the old thou shalt not, you shall not do this, you shall not do that. In, Romans, in, in Mark 10, 19, it says, do not do this. It's changed to an imperative. Don't do this. Well, it's the same idea. Uh, regarding the Passover lambs, Exodus 12, 46, it says, do not break any of, of the bones. John applied that to Jesus. Application, maybe a use of an application of this. He says, not one of his bones will be broken. Well, he's got that idea from Exodus 12. But he didn't need to quote it directly either, though. He didn't feel the need to do that. He's just getting the point across. Isaiah's, in Isaiah 6, 9, that's in an imperative mood. Be ever hearing, never understanding his command. Uh, and Jesus quoted that in Matthew 13, 14. He, sa he says, you will be ever hearing but never understanding. Well, it's the same idea. He's saying the same thing. Sometimes there's a need to quote directly. Other times there's not, depending on the circumstances. Uh, number nine, general references occasionally made more specific to the New Testament quotations. Amos 5.26 says, the shrine of your king, the star of your God, although... I think king and Amos may even be, could be translated Molech, if I'm not mistaken. Stephen quoted this in Acts 7.43. Stephen's quoting Amos, by the way. Get that? He says, he refers to the shrine of Molech and the star of your god, Remphan. Remphan, sometimes Remphan. Um, so he, he doesn't say king, he says Molech, but their, their king might have been Molech and Amos. Okay? Anybody have any questions so far? Number 10, sometimes the extent of the reference has changed. Amos 5.27, you have to look, you have to study this one more. It talks about the exile beyond Damascus. Stephen quotes it. He quotes Amos again. Exile beyond Babylon. It's interesting that in his sermon he picked out Amos as one of the passages to quote. Um, 11, the order of the clauses is sometimes rearranged. Uh, when Jesus quoted five of the Ten Commandments in Luke 18, he gave them in a different order than Exodus 20 does. Why? I don't know. Maybe it served his purpose. I'm not sure why he did it. He's talking to the rich young ruler. I'm not sure what was going on exactly. Um, Twelve, sometimes two quotations are combined and assigned to the more prominent. Oh, here's one. A New Testament writer. Have you ever noticed this? Like Mark chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Um, turn to Mark chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. You may wonder about this. Isaiah 40, verse 3, um, is, is quoting, um, Behold, I, I hate to say this without actually looking it up. Isaiah 40, verse 3, let me look it up for you. says this, A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Mark 1, 2, and 3, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send a me my messenger ahead of you, will prepare your way. 
the voice of one crying in the wilderness. This is not a good example here. Sometimes, and I don't have an example in front of me, unfortunately. It'll, it'll quote like, uh, okay, Malachi 3.1. It'll quote uh, Isaiah the prophet. It says in Isaiah the prophet. But really the quote's in Zechariah or Malachi, okay? And you'll say, well, why is it doing that? Because in the Hebrew Bible, in the lead section of one of the, uh, of, of, there's three sections. The lead uh, writer of that section may have been Isaiah, that one section. And so when they say, it says in Isaiah, they're, they're saying this. That's their way of saying it's in the prophets, and Isaiah is the lead one in that section. So we're, we're, we're making reference to him. That's why they say that sometimes. If you wonder, why does it say Zechariah? Well, it was from Zechariah, but he's quoting it because Isaiah led that section off of the, of, of the Old Testament Hebrew Bible, and so everybody knew, oh, he's talking about the prophets. Uh, The law, the prophets, and the writings. Yeah. So if you were looking, we should talk about that in here. The Hebrew Old Testament is different from our, our, our Bible. It's the same substance, same content. It's just arranged differently. We changed that. The English people changed that to the way we have it now, topically. More topically than they had it. It's, well, maybe I should talk about that next time. Um, <clears throat> along with everything else here. Probably should introduce that anyway. Um, Number 13, sometimes the New Testament writers render the sense of an Old Testament passage loosely as a paraphrase. It's okay that they did that. Nobody needs to freak out about that. Matthew 13, 35. Psalm 78.2 says this, I will utter things hidden from, the, from of old. I will utter things hidden from of old. Matthew 13, 35 says, I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Basically just paraphrasing, paraphrasing what he said. Um, it's okay that he paraphrased. He didn't do anything wrong. Um, the thought's the same, and uh, it's okay that he did that. And there are many more examples like that. 